Are you curious about, interested in, or working within the field of anesthesiology and you are a woman, person of color, or otherwise do not fit the stereotypical image of what an anesthesiologist looks like, then this is the podcast for you. We will discuss what life is like on the other side of the blue drape for us. Issues most relevant, such as what is anesthesia really? And we're not talking textbook definition. Tips for applying, success in residency, life as an attending, and beyond. Join us each week as we take a dive into this rich and often misunderstood field. This is your host, Dr. Alicia Peterson, and welcome to Sivo Sisters. Do you think the rest of your life is going to go easy on you just because anesthesiology residency is tough? So surely life will see your blood, sweat, and tears and not put anything else on your plate. Well, think again. In this part one of my interview with Dr. Christina Hardaway, you will see how life continued to throw significant challenges her way. Life will come at you strong, but the good news is that you are stronger. As Rocky Balboa said, Life is not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much can you take and keep moving forward? That's how winning is won. Listen for how Dr. Christina Hardaway is winning. Oh, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Christina Hardaway. You will hear how she has navigated some pretty difficult times in life. And she is a board certified anesthesiologist. She's a single mother. She has entrepreneurial interests and we are all for it. So uh, Dr. Hardaway, what else would you like to share with the audience about yourself? Okay. okay. Well, um, so like Dr. Peterson said, I'm definitely a focus on um, being an entrepreneur, being able to um, basically have control of my schedule. Um, so right now I'm, you know, working three days a week. I can do things outside of work and be able to balance my time. So I do have my own business. Um in a telemedicine project that I am working on. And I'm also getting into some real estate um, as well. So stay tuned for that. Love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so that's just a couple more things I'm uh, working on um, mm-hmm. since I've been out of residency. And um, I came out in 2017. So mm-hmm. I, I knew kind of right away, I'm like, okay, I have to take ownership of my schedule, um, what I do, my life, instead of, you know, having those outside factors control um, how I dictate my day-to-day life. Right. And let's get into what drove you to want to have time control and autonomy. Let's start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I know that we think so linearly We're going to go straight from, we're going to do medical school, then it's, you know, the internship, the residency, and it's then off to private practice or academics. And, you know, you really don't factor in that life can 
make that path look not as linear. You know, tell us about your journey um, in medical school. Okay, so to address your first question of what um, made me decide to kind of take control of, you know, my life and Mm -hmm. reduce my hours, uh, that started in residency. (laughs) Honestly, Ah. when you get to residency, um, people really don't prepare you for how intense it is, how many hours you have to put in, how you kind of have to be a yes person. So no matter if someone's talking down to you, um, no matter if the nurses don't respect you, you still have to say yes, because you have to get through residency and get your degree, unfortunately. Um, and at that moment in time, when I was at my lowest, I was like, you know, after I get done with residency, I'm going to make sure that I can make my own decisions and be able to take control of how I practice and what I do. Um, Secondly, having a child um, at the beginning of my CA2 year definitely put a new perspective on life. Before that, I was strictly focused on myself, focusing on becoming a doctor, um, focusing on just being board certified, being an anesthesiologist, but now I have a person that I have to take care of and make sure she grows into a um, beautiful human being. (laughs) Mm. So at that point, I was like, okay, I have this baby. Now I'm raising her um, by myself and I have to be able to not only be 100% at being an anesthesiologist, but also having time to put 100% into being a good mother. Um, And so I got through those two years, I started thinking about plans then. And when I first got out of residency, my first job was private practice. Um, It was in a rural town in Georgia, in middle Georgia. And it was a, a private group. And, you know, when you first get out, you're like, okay, all right, I'm looking for the money aspect. And like I said, for me, I was like, okay, I need to start making money right away because I have a child and I was pretty much broken residency because of course they don't pay you much. Um, and I was in New York. So it definitely was cut in half. We got to pause here because you raised some really interesting insights that I think I don't want our audience to, to overlook. One is, mm-hmm. is that you mentioned what, as a resident, here you are, Um, a physician and you're learning anesthesia. And you mentioned that Mm -hmm. that whole model we have of team-based care, um, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you didn't feel like you were in a team. No, I did not. It was very work-driven. And it was unfortunate because I, you know, I did an externship at at Mayo Clinic, and it was very focused on learning anesthesia, studying, things of that nature. And then when I got to my program um, in New York, it was more focused on make sure you're in a room and you get the work done by all means necessary. (laughs) So there was a lot of days that we were there early to set up at 630. We didn't leave till seven o'clock at night. Um, And this is even while I was pregnant. I was doing ICU call uh, 24 hours every three days pregnant. And um, there wasn't really, not there that people didn't really care about that fact. You know, I didn't want them to care or treat me any differently, but Mm -hmm. I do even feel like as an individual, even if I was not pregnant, um, you were basically forced to make sure you do your work. Don't Mm -hmm. complain. And you're basically the workforce of the hospital. 
Um, So we me a lot of independence. Um, Even I did a year in internal medicine because we had to do that as our first year. You don't start right away with anesthesia. You do a year, either a transitional year or you do internal medicine for a year or you do a surgical year. And I did internal medicine. We had a very, very uh, busy service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we basically made all the decisions. We were up all night. Um, we had people coming in from the ER. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would leave patients in the hallway to just drop them off and they're almost dying. So mm-hmm. it was really like, looking back, it's almost like a blur because I was just working. Um, mm-hmm. But like I said, um, you're expected to you know, basically it's almost like it's a privilege for you to be there. So like I was saying before, it's not that you don't have a voice. It's just, you're expected just to just Mm kind of go with the flow Mm -hmm. and do what you need to do. And then they'll give you your rents for residence. It's not like, I mean, I don't even know if there's a a union now for physicians, but definitely for residents, we don't have a lot of people to stand up for us, not even the hospitals. It's like a whole separate entity. And you, a lot of times you're defending yourself, especially as a black woman, Um, you have to defend yourself and you might not be heard or people have stereotypes that, you know, you don't understand why they see you in a certain light. You can work as hard as you can and put forth the effort, but people will still see you a certain way. Give us an example of how you had to defend yourself and what, what does that look like? Um, Especially when you're a resident. So I do re- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I do remember my first year, just one example. It's basically residencies. Um, they kind of throw you to the wolves and figure it out. <laughs> It's unfortunate, but it happens. So I remember I had asked one of the nurses on the floor. um, She was a Caucasian female. I had asked if she can um, do something for a patient in order that I put in. And she said that she wasn't going to do it. Um, And I had already told her, I spoke to my attending. This is what we're going to do. And she basically kind of shouted at me in the hallway, uh, went back and forth in a very disrespectful way. And I was just Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, like, well, if you know, if I, maybe if I look different or was a male, maybe this wouldn't have proceeded that way. I felt like there was a lack of respect. That that example really highlights what many uh, Black women face in the hospital. You expect another woman to respect you because we're all women, right? We're all in this exactly. together. And it right. is particularly hurtful and disheartening to see another woman if anything, just uphold the patriarchy and not pay you the respect that they would another man. It's hard um, to digest that, but it looks like you, you, you know, put one foot in front of the other and just kept, kept going. Kept going. (laughs) Yeah. That's all you can do. Mentioned, I mean, really huge, your baby uh, in CA2 year, like CA2 year is that year, right? Where you decide what you're going to do as far as fellowship or, or practice and you have a baby. That's the year they introduced the basics exams. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> so you, had to, you were subjected to the basics? Yes. That you had to pass after your CA one year in order to move along. <laughs> oh, no. So yeah, how, yeah. how did you have, how do you as a single mom have this really demanding residency and be this, you know, amazing mom and take care of your baby? How did you do that? 
So there's a couple of aspects, um, I guess, looking back, like I said, when I was doing it, I was just in the moment and it was taken each day at a time. Um, But looking back, honestly, I had to have, I wouldn't say I had a support system, you know, people that who did kind of step up in the hospital, who had relatives that were like in Jamaica, who were interested in um, coming to America. So they were like, oh yeah, my cousin can watch your child while you're at work for a couple of months on a visa. <laughs> so as far as childcare, like I had people who would come in from, you know, different places and help watch my uh, child for me. So that was, that was one thing. And then I also had a, a pastor friend who helped me spiritually get through certain situations and being in the Bronx, um, my mother grew up in the Bronx and she had friends um, that were there that they she grew up with. And my mother had already passed at this time, but, you know, from her growing up there, she had a best friend who would help me take my daughter to doctor's appointments in the morning. So but, like, I feel like God put people in my life at the right time just to help me get through the situation. Um, and I just really took one day at a time, honestly, and just prayed and prayed and cried and prayed. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I felt like at the end of the day, God always worked it out. And mm-hmm. honestly, I have to attribute it all to just, you know, Lord, the Lord bringing people in my life. And I know, you know, some people aren't spiritual, but I do think I couldn't have done it on my own. At what point, you know, when, when did your mom transition? You know, when did she die? And um, how did you move forward? My second year of medical school, um, right before kind of that summer before you take your step one exam. Mm. Um, and so she was sick. She was diagnosed with cancer, um, towards the end of my undergrad and then post back, she was struggling with it. And my first day of medical school, she had a major surgery. She has, she has stomach cancer. Well, really in the intestine, peritoneal cancer. And um, she had a surgery. She didn't wake up and she had a stroke during the surgery. Um, And we're not sure why. We don't know if it was low blood pressure, you know, which really after that made me want to do anesthesiology. But she didn't, she woke up and she couldn't talk. She had a major stroke um, just from the surgery. And, um, after that, two years later, my second year, that's when she transitioned. Um, and she, we had her funeral where I was in medical school in Nashville um, at Meharry. And really at that time, Meharry and the dean, Dean Williams, who's no longer alive, but um, they really supported me during mm-hmm. that situation. They really did. I mean, my whole class showed up to my mother's funeral. Dean Williams um, helped me create the obituaries. We stayed up all night (laughs) at the school and they helped me put together my mother's obituaries so they would be ready. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, going to, I think choosing your medical school is important Mm -hmm. because like you said before, life happens. Mm -hmm. You don't know when it's going to happen. And if you have a team of people behind you, you're, you can get through it. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, your entire med school class there, mm-hmm. it, it got your back. You know, the major stroke that you mentioned and how that influenced your decision to pursue anesthesia. 
Um, or was anesthesia something mm-hmm. that you had looming in the background? Tell us about how. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did go to medical school wanting to be an anesthesiologist, thanks to Dr. Peterson here. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a whole nother story. I swear I could talk all day about it. (laughs) Um, But my first interest started in high school um, on a little yellow bus. (laughs) Yeah. And um, we went to a college prep high school and they were very keen on what do you want to be, you know, (laughs) when you grow up. So um, after you had told me about anesthesiology, I kind of started looking it up in the career center and mm-hmm. uh, talked to a black an- woman anesthesiologist. And after that, I was sold on anesthesiology. So I did go in wanting to do anesthesiology. Um, I did think about switching to orthopedic surgery my first year of medical school mm-hmm. um, because I met this awesome orthopedic surgeon. Her name is Dr. Bonnie Simpson. Mm-hmm. And um, she came to speak to us and I was like, oh, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. But like I said, after second year when my mom died, mm-hmm. um, I went back to um, to wanting to do anesthesiology. Wow. Now, guys, I just want you to, to acknowledge that when she said we met on a little, on a yellow bus, I mean, this is us when we are like in high school. I mean, high school. we are like, you know, 14, 15. I mean, like, what do I know about anesthesia? My mom told me I should look into it. And here I am telling her about it. But it's just amazing how planting one seat, making one suggestion can make all the yes. difference. So it's just like, I'm just yes. floored because never in a million years that I think that me <laughs> you know, talking to her about this, talking to Dr. Hardaway about this would lead to her actually like becoming it, which is amazing. Yeah. Well, I really looked up to you. I think you were two years older. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, me, like you said, being a freshman, sophomore, I looked up to you and I respected you and respected your opinion. And when she told me this, I was like, oh, yeah, she doesn't tell me anything else. Let me go look. And I, you know, (laughs) and I always, you know, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I was like, you know, if she tell Alicia, I call her Alicia. Yeah. yeah, Uh, She's telling me this, that uh, (laughs) she's telling me this, that I am going to seriously take a look at this. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. So just y'all out there, you just never know what kind of impact you have on people like you know, mm-hmm. absolutely love Christina. So, all right. So now, um, your, your path has been cemented. Um, your mom, uh, had passed away and how does the rest of medical school look for you? Um, did you require like, you know, therapy to help you with the grieving? I would imagine that, you know, there's just moments where you, you think you're good and then you, you know, you see, have a patient encounter and it triggers you. Right. right? Oh boy. Okay. So yes, (laughs) this is so true. I I'm finally getting therapy for that. I did not, um, immediately. Um, it's because, you know, there's always, in the background, you're like, oh, you don't need therapy. That's not for us. You know, I need to just be strong. I was in the church at that time and my pastor who actually, um, actually oversaw my mother's funeral. He was very helpful um, as well, getting me through it spiritually. But like I said, at the time I was um, studying for step one and, you know, you just do questions, right? And there were so many questions on there that triggered me. 
Um, there was a lot of things that happened to my mother because of the cancer, the peritoneal cancer, as you know, that surrounds most of the major organs, the kidneys, everything like that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, she did go into kidney failure, needed dialysis. She had bowel obstruction, you know, colostomy, all that. Mm -hmm. And so every question triggered me because I was like, well, could they have done that differently? Should I have made that decision? Why didn't I think of that? Because since I was the one in medical school, I was the one who talked to the doctors. I was the one that my family looked uh, to in order to answer questions. Wow. And I didn't know much. Of course not. You're a medical student. And so when I started, yeah, exactly. So when I started doing these questions and got more knowledge just from questions, I would break down because I was like, oh, I should have did this. Like, I didn't do this right. And it was a lot of guilt. It was very hard to study. Very, very hard Um, because second year is before you do your clinicals, of course. And um, it took me almost a year to even like have the confidence to feel like I was ready to take step one. And it was my dean who actually pushed me. She was like, you have to just take this test, just do it because you've already been studying this long. And I was like, fine. She was like, you'll be fine. You're ready. And I ended up taking it, got the score I needed. And um, but I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually it was a lot of triggering. Absolutely. I mean, and did you end up taking any time off during medical school or you just kept trudging along? I just kept studying. I stayed at school and studied. Granted, I wasn't taking any classes because they wouldn't let you start your uh, clinical rotations your third year until you took step one. Mm -hmm. Um, So they said it, they, in order for me to still get, you know, I guess, outside money they I forgot how they actually did it it was just like a a period of time where it's it was an off semester but I was there actively studying um for step one okay so you took off a semester Mm -hmm. okay okay and then you got the score and then you went back into it her mother died during medical school this strengthened her commitment to pursue anesthesia She faced prejudice through her medical training, had a baby in CA2 year with a taxing 1Q3 call schedule. And just when she thought, okay, I think I got the hang of this, the basic examination was rolled out during her year. Her story demonstrates when in hell, folks, keep moving. Her trials focused her commitment to anesthesia. It didn't take away. It fueled her to take on the specialty on her terms. Pay attention to what your challenges illuminate for you. What interests does it pique for you? What does it turn you away from? For Dr. Hardaway, it tightened her commitment to the field of anesthesia. Her story also highlights the power of community and of therapy. Black woman, superhero, super shero, it's a myth. We need help. It's okay to ask for help. It's healthy to receive help. You cannot step into your truest and fullest self without help. Stay tuned for part two where the challenges continue. I want to invite you to leave me a voice message with 
topics you want covered, concerns you have, questions, I will place your question live on the podcast and address it. If you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear my voice. I don't want to be on the pod. Then just let me know in the voice message, hey, I want this topic covered, but I'd rather you not play this clip live. That is fine. You don't even have to leave me any identifying information. This podcast is for you and I want it to best serve you, which would involve me hearing from you. The phone number to leave the voice message is 202-743-1404. And I'll also place them in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.